Hello, everybody. Welcome to the new bonus episodes, or the bonus series, for the second season. Um, I attended the Costa Rican Big Data School, and, you know, I thought that maybe, maybe, <laughs> some of you can take some value out of this. Um, you know, many aspiring computer scientists and software engineers would really benefit from the things that they talk about in this event. This was a five-day event from Monday through Friday, um, from 8 to 4, <laughs> so it was pretty extensive, and they talked about a lot of different subjects and, uh, you know, very important things that you got to know in this day and age with big data and data science and data analysis. So I thought, you know what, I'll put this up. Maybe some of my listeners can take advantage of this and can benefit from listening to really, really high-end professors uh, from the... Texas Advanced Computing Center. Um, so, our instructors will be Weiya Shu. He's a PhD and the group lead for data mining and statistics group. Prior to joining TAC, he obtained a master's degree in biological sciences and a doctoral degree in computer science from the University of Texas at Austin. Then there's also Charlie Day. Charlie Day is the Director of Training and Professional Development with the User Services Group at TAC with a background in web development and scientific computing. Charlie's responsibilities at TAC include organizing, developing content, and building curriculums for TAC's academic course selection taught in conjunction with several departments at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as for TAC's professional development and educational team. Oh well. Oh, and just a quick thanks to Danny Sie, who was the one who recorded these uh, segments. Without him, we wouldn't have this awesome bonus round. <laughs> so thank you very much, and enjoy. Hello. Well, pero listo, estamos para el segundo día. Tenemos a Charlie Day y Weiya Shu del TAC de Austin, Texas. Entonces, eh, bienvenidos. Welcome, Charlie and Weiya, to this second day of Costa Rica Big Data School. Um, la primera sesión será, será un overview del TAC y, y dejo a Charlie para que empiecen ya con él. Y después vamos a, a, a ver cómo resolvemos los aspectos también de conexión con el clúster, esperando que todos eh, puedan conectarse bien. So, go ahead, Charlie. Hey, thank you very much. So, um, this is very similar to my classroom back in Texas, where we have a big podium in the middle, so it splits the class up. Anyways, I want to introduce myself. My name is Charlie Day. Thank you very much, Carlos. Thank you very much. As, uh, I forgot your name. Yeah, Manuel. And thank you very much, Esteban, for having us here. Uh, we're very happy to be here. This is really a very cool experience. Uh, even though our journey here was kind of rough, but it took us what normally would be a four-hour flight, it took us about 12 hours to get here. So, but we're, we're happy to be here. Uh, I want to start out with a little bit about myself. So I am Charlie Day. I am the Director of Training and Professional Development over at TAC. TAC is the Texas Advanced Computing Center. We're one of uh, seven supercomputing centers in the U.S. Uh, arguably the best one. So, 
We have been around for about 17 years now. We started, started very kind of a, a very low key and working our way up, and I'll, I'll tell you more about it. So my job basically is to learn new technologies and learn new tools and then figure out the best way of teaching them. So I think I have the best job over attack. I get to learn all the cool stuff and then uh, apply those. All right, so uh, TAC, we're located with UT Austin, so the University of Texas at Austin is separated into a research umbrella and an academic umbrella, so we're under the, under the research side of things. Uh, we have about 160 people on staff, a mostly, uh, I would say about 20 students, and about 70 of them uh, are PhDs, 70 of our, our staff members, but to be absolutely honest, uh, the way TAC is set up and the way our culture is set up is very, if you'd be very hard pressed to realize who has a PhD and who does not. We understand that everybody at TAC, no matter what your position is, has something important to contribute. Uh, one reason I joined TAC was you walk into the room and everybody knows that they are not the smartest person in the room. There's always somebody else who contributes to something new. So the way we're set up, we are funded by the University of Texas systems. So UT, uh, very similar to Costa Rica. We have different university systems in Texas, uh, one of which is the University of Texas systems. There's also Texas A&M systems. There's Texas State, and then there's Texas Tech. Uh, we are funded by the UT system. That's our, and the National, uh, the National Science Foundation is our umbrella. Uh, the National Science Foundation gives us about 90% of our actual money comes from the grants from the NSF. And the big thing is, is we have about 10,000 users on our 15 different HPC resources. So we have a lot of different scientific resources and we have over 10,000 users. Honestly, our number is bigger than that. These 10,000 users are the ones that, honestly, the 10,000 users are the ones that actually use the system on a command line. The other group of users, which are, which probably is about 30, 40,000 users, actually use our gateways and portals. So the way our systems are designed is we, we understand that there is a, a need for scientists to use our systems. What we try and do is make it easier for the scientists to use our systems. So you don't have to go to a command line. You don't have to know how to program in C++ or Fortran to be able to access our systems. So we set up these scientific gateways, uh, one of which you guys will be using uh, for the duration of this course. We set up these scientific gateways as an interface to our machines. So the user doesn't realize that they're using TAC resources in the background, but they actually are. Uh, we have partnered with a bunch of different company, or a bunch of different Texas systems as well. One of our biggest partners is UT Research Cyber Infrastructure, uh, UTRC, the idea there is to bring in all of the University of Texas researchers under the same umbrella and bring them into our systems to use. We're also uh, part of the Exceed project at, in the US. Exceed is a cooperative uh, environment developed by all of the different supercomputing centers. So there's about seven different centers. We understand that to really use our system, you kind of have to be close to one of those centers. So the idea behind Exceed is to expand that to the rest of the United States as well. So no matter how small of a university you're with or how small of a research lab you're with, you can join our one, any number of supercomputing systems through Exceed. Um, so our main mission at TAC is to advance scientific discovery 
have through society and through science to better society. We kind of like to say what kind of happens here changes the world. So we like to say what starts here changes the world with tech. So, all right. So let's see. Let's move this way. Uh -huh. All right. So a quick glance. We have one billion compute hours uh, per year. We have approximately 5 billion files sitting in our file systems. We have over 50 petabytes of data actually being sent through our systems. We have another 60 to 70 petabytes of data uh, that is sitting in our archives. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of public data sets as well. So one of the coolest data sets we have is through the University of Anchorage, Alaska. They have a uh, big data set of whale songs. So scientists have tracked a bunch of whales throughout the world and have recorded their songs, and those songs are available in our public data sets. Uh, some of the other pub public data sets we have is we have a big uh, commun community project going on. So you have s s civilian scientists. If they see a dragonfly, they can take their phone out, take a picture of the dragonfly, and send it to our system. So a bunch of researchers are uh, tracking the, how dragonflies are migrating throughout the United States. Um, we also, all of this is housed in a 10 megawatt uh, data, uh, data center. So we have about 15,000 square feet of data center and about 20 different HPC resources that are sitting inside there. And it's all through generate about 10 megawatts of electricity. The power use consumption is actually rather interesting as well. So we do a lot of reuse. I would say about 60% of our power is from uh, renewable resources. Uh, so we have our our big systems and our big services, of course, our HPC systems. So we have a high. We also do high throughput computing, which is our data analysis machines. Uh, we do uh, large scale data storage as well uh, for all these public data sets that we're using. We do a lot of cloud computing, so we have one system that you guys are actually going to be using as well called Jetstream. Uh, Jetstream is kind of cool. So you jump onto the machine and you actually choose what you want, uh, what kind of images you need to load, what kind of containers you want to load, what software you want to load, and the system builds it for you. We also have another machine called Chameleon, which is designated especially for computer scientists. So the idea is you have a big uh, a scientific software stack. You have a bunch of software algorithms that you want to test, and you want to test those under different configurations. So one of our cloud systems, Chameleon, allows for that. It allows for you to choose, I want uh, this many GPU nodes, I want this many CPU nodes, I want this much memory, and it builds a system for you, and then you can, set your, you can then uh, test your systems. And then, like I mentioned before, we have portals and gateways. Those are basically the openings for other systems, other scientists to be able to use our systems without going through a command line. Uh, we do a bunch of web service APIs as well, very similar to, uh, the, uh, to, to Amazon Web Services. And we do uh, a bit what we call software stacks. So containers are the, really, are the next big thing happening in our industry right now. Uh, in fact, Friday we will do an entire session tutorial on using containers. So we actually have a lot of containers sitting in our archives for people to use and then load so they don't have to actually rebuild uh, their own software stack. And then of course we have to do other things. We do a lot of consulting work. We do training exercises like these. Uh, we do a lot of data curation and data analysis. In fact, we have a, a full-time staff at TAC that help with data curation. Uh, data curation is a lot bigger than I originally thought it was. And, you know, it, it's a semester-long course in and of itself. 
And then we do code optimization, and then of course a lot of training and outreach as well. Uh, because honestly, the systems are only, only as good as the users. So if you can get your users up to speed to be able to use our systems, then we have a very nice, happy community. So these are some of the systems that we have right now. Uh, actually, uh, the first machine up there is Stampede. That was our big, giant cluster from a number of years ago. That machine's actually been retired. There's only maybe three or four racks left of Stampede 1. Uh, a lot of cool things we do with Stampede after a machine retires is we uh, find uh, other computing centers, either in the US or around the world, that then take old racks of our retired machines and then they start building their HPC centers around it. Uh, Stampede and our and a previous machine called Ranger were both sent to uh, some of the supercomputing centers in Africa. It was uh, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, uh, South Africa, uh, where the majority, they were up and coming supercomputing centers, so they received a lot of our old racks. And then we have Lone Star 5. So Stampede is a national, is a national resource. Uh, Lone Star 5 is really just for the University of Texas and Texas Systems for Texas researchers to be able to get onto our systems easier. We have Maverick. Maverick is our, our GPU-based machine. Uh, Wrangler is our big data-intensive computing machine. In fact, if everything goes well, you guys will be using Wrangler for this as well. Uh, Chameleon is our cloud-based. Hikari is actually really a cool machine. So Hikari has about uh, 10,000, 15,000 cores, has well processor cores. But that machine is solar-powered. So Texas is really hot, just like Costa Rica is really hot. And we have a lot of sun. Uh, we got a brand new building being built, and then uh, this company from Japan came to us and said, hey, we were doing research work to see can we make a, uh, a renewable resource-powered supercomputer. And we said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So they built this machine, Hikari, and it has a giant solar power array that's sitting on top of our parking lot. So now, not only do we get a, super, a really cool supercomputer, but we also have covered parking, so we get to protect ourselves from the heat. Uh, then on our main campus, we have a big viz lab. So the visualization lab is where scientists go and they view their data on a big giant 380 megapixel uh, tile display. Uh, we also go there and we have like video game nights where we go play video games in the viz lab or we watch football games. Um, so Stallion is our big tile display. Lasso is our multi-touch display, so it's like a miniature version of Stallion, of Stallion but it can, has over, I want to say it has over 350 points of touch. So you can have a lot of people analyzing data at the exact same time. Uh, Jetstream is our other cloud-based machine. Uh, Jetstream is for researchers where Chameleon is built for computer scientists. So the one thing that we do on Chameleon that we don't do on any other machine that really drives our, our information technology guys nuts is we give users root access to Chameleon. Uh, then we also have a bunch of new up and coming systems. We have Fabric, which is our FPGA machine. Uh, Discovery is an interesting machine. It is a test bed system. So when a company like Intel or Dell or HP has a new machine or a new hardware configuration that they like, they'd like to test, we have a rack specifically designed for testing, which is uh, they go in the discovery system. Uh, Rodeo is our big giant VM farm that we'll be using in this class as well. And then Corral is our uh, one of our data storage systems. And then Ranch is really cool. So Ranch is our tape archive system. Uh, it, it, we're actually in the middle of doing an upgrade on it right now, but we realized to upgrade to upgrade Ranch 
it's going to take four years to get the data off of ranch right now onto the ranch too because there's just so much data sitting on there and it's a really really cool machine as well um, if you guys seen the star wars movie uh, rogue one so you know rogue one when everybody has to so big spoiler coming up here rogue one when everybody has to uh, they're stealing the, the plans to the death star and they break into this big imperial data center and in the imperial data center there's a big robot arm that moves around and pulls tapes off of the archive and loads the tapes into the machine and so then the guys break in and they break the tape up through there anyways branch works the exact same way except smaller scale there's a big uh, big room where you have a bunch of tapes archives sitting inside there and you have a robot arm that moves around there pulls the tapes out and then loads it into the uh, loads it into the system to be loaded so Branch is really, really cool, especially when you watch Ranch, uh, Ranch actually working. Uh, Stockyard is our data set that, or is our, another data storage system that it is what holds all of our other systems together. Uh, so one of the big problems is when you have multiple HPC systems and you're trying to transfer data from one, so I'm going to use Stampede 2 and I'm going to build my big giant data set and then I'm going to go to uh, Maverick and Maverick's going to actually uh, do the uh, visualization on it and then I'm going to take that data and go to Wrangler and do some really high high intensive data analysis on it you need a, a file system that combines all those together so you don't actually have to move your systems around so that's where Stockyard comes into play and then Catapult and uh, Rustler so Rustler is just a, basically a Hadoop machine uh, people were trying to do Hadoop on Stampede and realized that Stampede's not built for that so we built a machine especially for Hadoop uh, and then we have Catapult, which is a Microsoft test bed machine. It is uh, designed for machine learning and deep learning. So these are our systems, and we have a, a few other systems that I didn't actually post on here. But, oops, I think. All right. So um, this slide's kind of out of order here. I was going to go through our, our little machines here. So visualization, we have Maverick, and Maverick is for visualization and machine learning, like I said. We have 132 NVIDIA uh, Tesla K40s, and Maverick is actually being retired right now. Uh, we are jumping to a new machine called Maverick 2 that I actually don't have listed. Uh, but Maverick 2 is a very interesting machine, and we'll talk about that really quick. So what makes Maverick 2 cool is each node, you know that GPUs generate a lot of heat, right? Uh, and each node on Maverick 2 has four uh, GPUs on it. So a lot of it's being generated. And they're actually, uh, so each node, because of the amount of heat, it can't sit in our data center. So our data center sits at about 60 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And we, to get that machine cool enough, it has to be a lot lower. It has to be able to expel heat a lot faster. So what we've done with Maverick 2 is we have these big giant oil drums. Uh, they're about the size of these tables. And we have two of them. Maverick 2 is actually submerged in this mineral oil, and then the mineral oil moves around, and that actually uh, cools the machine off about 60% better than just air-cooled. So Maverick 2 would not exist outside of the oil because it would burn up because it's burning so hot. And of course, because it is burning hot and it is sitting in oil, we can overclock them, so we can run them a little bit more powerfully than uh, a normal machine would. All right. uh, we also have a machine I mentioned earlier called Wrangler. So Wrangler is our big data intensive machine. And with, like I said, with luck, we'll uh, be using Wrangler in this class with, uh, with uh, Wager. So um, Wrangler has about 3,000 uh, processing cores it's for data analytics. It's got a 10 petabyte storage system. 
600 terabyte, uh, these things called DSSDs, which are dynamic solid state drives. So normally on a solid state drive, it works just like a wafer. So you have this, most of our machines have solid state drives in them. But you know, I have what, 256 uh, gig on mine. I'm never gonna use that much. I only probably use the first, say 100 gig of it. So the 100 gig you're writing, rewriting, writing, rewriting, is eventually gonna die and then you have to replace your drive. So what's interesting about that dynamic version, it actually uses the entire wafer. So it never actually overwrites the same sector as many times as you would on your normal DSS or normal SSD. Uh, so the, the, the lifespan on a DSSD is a lot bigger. And we have a bandwidth of about one terabyte per second. So uh, the way I explain this to my students is, so everybody, most, a lot of people have PS4 systems, the Sony PS4 gaming system, or, a Microsoft, or the Microsoft Xbox. And I ask them, all right, so you load in your Blu-ray Blu game. How long does that take to be able to load that, copy that stuff off the Blu-ray and put it onto your hard drive? You know, Normally it takes probably about an hour, hour and a half, two hours, depending on what the game is. So essentially we can do that in two seconds on Wrangler, loading a Blu-ray onto the drive. So right now Wrangler is an Exceed system, so people through Exceed can use that. Uh, the other machine I mentioned was Corral. So Corral is our big 11 petabyte uh, replicated storage system. So it's replicated to, to, uh, to UT Austin, UT Arlington. Uh, something I should tell you about data. Data is very, very important. All right? uh, programming is important. Your code is that generates the data is important, but not as important as the data sets that you've created. All right? And to give you an example of, of the importance that we take over at TAC, if there's ever a power outage, um, our machines just shut down. There's no pretty way of making sure everything shuts down nicely and we can revive them back up. No, they just power off. There's not much we can do about it. But we do have a lot of backup power, and that backup power is actually goes to, goes to our data sets and our data storage systems to make sure that they power down nicely so that the data never gets uh, corrupted or disappeared. And so we also, that's why it's replicated in Arlington as well. Arlington is a city approximately um, maybe twice the distance between here and uh, Liberia. So about in the US, about 300 miles. Or about, or maybe about the same distance from here to Liberia. It's close to about 180 or 200 miles. So um, anyways, we do, we, we give five terabytes of data space free to everybody to use so they can store their data on there. And then after that, we do a little bit of cost recovery. And then we come to our big high-performance clusters. So our, our high-performance clusters, we have Lone Star 5 that I mentioned. Lone Star 5 is our, is our big giant cray. Uh, it's, some people argue that Lone, the Lone Star 5 is really the only true supercomputer that we actually have, because most supercomputers you can, are just like our desktop machines. You, know, you can take a, a node out of your supercomputer and plug it in and use it just as a PC. Uh, Lone Star doesn't work that way. If you pull a node out of Lone Star, it gets confused and doesn't know what to do anymore. So that is really kind of a, a tuned, so the word, even the reason I bring this up is the guy I co-teach with over at TAC is one of the Lone Star system admins. And so he likes to point out that no, Lone Star is a real supercomputer. Everything else we have is actually just a cluster. So our, now we have our big machine. So our big machine, our flagship system as of now is this machine called Stampede 2. Uh, Stampede 2 is 
Uh, it's about 18 petaflops. It was sitting at number fifth when it first first introduced at TAC uh, and came up. It was the sixth fastest supercomputer in the, in the world. Uh, and then it kind of, re, like I said, we do a lot of testing with Intel and we realize that there is a problem in their BIOS and actually not just their BIOS, but also a problem on how the chip was cast. So we fixed that problem, we sped up the machine and then it still came at number six because a lot of other machines came up ahead of us. But we have 4,200 Intel Knights Landing processors on there, so a nodes on there. Uh, each, each Intel uh, core is 68 cores, so to give you a rough estimate, our laptops are usually about four to eight cores, so that's 68 cores, uh, 96 gigabytes of RAM, and 16 gigabytes of high-speed RAM. And then we have our other machine, which is, or part of Stampede 2 as well, is not just the Knight's Landing processors, but we have about 1,700 Intel Skylake processors, and the Skylakes are what kind of gives us the big boost. So we have, each one of those has 48 cores and about 192 gigabytes of RAM per node. Um, and then it's all wired together with 100 gigabytes per second Intel Omnipath, though the Intel Omnipath gives us the cabling and the network. So the biggest issue, essentially the biggest issue we have with Stampede 2, especially with the size of it, it's not, it's not uh, we are limited by the speed of light. So the slowest connection is gonna be a machine from, or one machine from this rack all the way to the other corner of the machine. So I would estimate that Stampede 2 probably would fit in this room perfectly, and that's where the slow speed comes into, when you have a machine sitting at that corner, and you have a machine sitting at this corner, and they have to communicate. So some of the work that we're doing at TAC is uh, we're doing, we're using our machines, of course, to understand and better model scientific data. So cancer, for example. Uh, one thing we're doing there is we're doing, of course, computer modeling to understand where, uh, where how cancer becomes generated, how it, how the DNA gets uh, mutated, and then how that becomes replicated. And then, of course, we also analyze that data as well. So we, there's a lot of data sets coming in from various parts of the U.S. And so they do data analysis on there. But the big thing is, is we are now using our AI and deep learning to understand what these MRI scans actually mean. So we can, a doctor can visually see that, oh yeah, this, this brain scan is showing me that there's a tumor forming. But there's a lot of little intricate details that the computer can pick up much sooner than a doctor can actually see. So those are the little intricate details that machine learning comes into play at. And so the machines can understand the patterns and recognize, the, uh, recognize and detect cancer before uh, the doctors can. We're also uh, just recently, this was made about two years ago, the uh, a group uh, won the Nobel Prize in physics for detecting gravitational waves. So I'm, sh I'm just show of hands, how many people have heard about the, the gravitational wave discovery or understand how LIGO works? So let me give you a brief example then. So the way LIGO is, is so gravitational waves. It says that when you know, Einstein predicted that when two mass, giant masses collide in space, they are going to uh, disrupt the space-time continuum. Uh, technically, they're actually distorting space because time is a, a, time is a function of space. So when space is distorted, time will also be distorted. But they're distorting space when these two giant masses collide in space, right? And so for a very long time, this theory was put out there, but nobody could actually prove the theory because there's no way of detecting a gravitational wave. And Einstein even said that 
yes, uh, this theory is true, but you're never going to be able to prove it because you, you will never detect gravitational waves. So one thing that the LIGO guys did, uh, which is the Laser uh, Inframometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, what they did was two things. A, they proved Einstein was right, and they also proved Einstein was wrong because they actually did detect it. So what they did was they built these giant four kilometer tubes that are located underground, and they have a laser, and actually they have two tubes at their, um, they're nine degrees from each other. So then they take a laser uh, and they bifurcate the wave so it goes on two different directions. At the end of each, each tube, there's a mirror, and it hits the mirror and reflects back. So under normal circumstances, it hits the mirror, it comes back, both beams of light should come back at the source at the exact same time because speed of light, right? If there was a gravitational wave that went through there at that point when they're doing running that experiment, then one beam will come back faster than the other beam. And so that's what they're detecting. The sensors on there were so sensitive that if a big giant truck were to drive by uh, the observatory, it would set off the sensors. So at the time, when at the time when this uh, research was done, they built two. Uh, in opposite ends of the US. So if one detector went off, it was an anomaly, but if both detectors went off, then they realized that actually detected a gravitational wave. What's interesting about it was their code, the original code was, um, was not correctly optimized. So what TAC did is they came to TAC to help us, help them write their code to detect these gravitational waves and to analyze these gigantic data sets that were being produced. Uh, so we were able to uh, help them optimize their code. We got it running about 10 times faster than it was originally. And when they first fired up the observatory, when they realized, they, we, we thought that uh, gravitational waves were, very, uh, were not very common. But we realized after they turned on the machines that they were actually a very common event in space. And so within the first three months, they detected their first wave. Uh, within another three months, they detected another wave. And so what they've done now is, with only the two, they can say, all right, big wave, a big something happened in space, but it happened somewhere. We don't really know where. So now they've built uh, two more uh, LIGO sites. They built, I believe, one in Europe, uh, one in India, and then another one in the US as well. And I think there's a third uh, in the southern hemisphere somewhere. I can't think of where. But now the idea is when, some, when the detectors go off, they can actually triangulate where in space it happened, and then your astronomers can actually concentrate in that location and view, uh, view what, the, uh, what the event was. So anyways, we like to, say, we like to brag about this because TAC was involved in a very small part on uh, them getting their Nobel Prize. And then the other thing is, is this is what's really been big at TAC lately, and actually in the HPC world. So, we understand that the big sciences are always going to be there. You know, astronomy. I mean, astronomy is where HVC came from. Understanding and astronomy is where big data came from because you don't have any data sets bigger than astronomy right now. Well, maybe it's coming here soon. But the biggest thing is, is we always try and push is how do, how does HVC, how does high performance computing relate to our everyday world, right? So one thing that we started, this is Kelly Gaither. Kelly is one of our directors at TAC, and this is kind of what started out as her little pet project, but has now grown uh, by leaps and bounds, is this advanced computing for social change. How can we make the world better? You know, right now we're trying to figure out how to make the United States better as well, but how do we make the world a better place through computing or with computing? How can, what role does HBC play 
in that. So you know, we do a lot of things with students. Um, we have we did over at the supercomputing conference that was just about two weeks ago. Uh, we did a big hackathon with a bunch of students. Let the students understand uh, gang violence and what kind of effects gang violence has in not just the small uh, communities where it, it is a, a high crime, but also how do those communities relate to one another and how does it expand out. So yeah, they did, uh, they did this gang violence research in social change. And then we also um, took that one step further and we realized, you know, we can apply the, the techniques that they're learning, we can apply that to else, to other uh, venues as well. So one thing that we did in Austin is we were looking at the data of children. And so we're understanding our welfare system. So we have a lot of children who are under state care or under, uh, they're under some, or state, their state has to monitor them for their own welfare, for their own well-being, because uh, they are at risk. So we've analyzed a bunch of data sets, or not we, but scientists have used our systems to analyze a bunch of data sets. To essentially, you can find to, a, to a, a particular address in a particular neighborhood of children that might be at risk for uh, violence. And so then the state can send out social workers to those areas or more social workers to that area in a less amount of time to understand what, uh, to basically make sure, ensure the safety of the children. So we're using uh, supercomputings to understand and expand health for at-risk children. And some of the other things we do, which is outside of the big giant sciences, is we have this dance with algorithms. So we occasionally we'll go through our systems and we'll see who's using our systems for what, you know. And if uh, if a research jumps out at us as wow, this is really really different, we'll do a story on it. So one of the things that we were looking at is when we we're looking through our systems a couple years ago, we saw that there was a dance instructor, a choreographer that was using our supercomputers to build better choreography or prettier choreography for ballet routines. And so they were using uh, basically supercomputers to make dance. And so we, that was a really interesting thing because it's not something you've ever seen done before, but it's also a, a, a component where HPC is actually filling in uh, something we do not normally see HPC in. It's not a science, it's beauty, it's art. And so now you have HPC involved in art. And then, of course, uh, this, this applies to the United States a little bit more than other countries right now, but our taxing system uh, is ridiculously complicated. So, of course, we need a supercomputer to understand what our tax system's like. Uh, so, we actually, there are economics, we use our machines to better understand the tax code, uh, to better understand what loopholes are out there, and to try and minimize that gap between uh, the uber-rich and the middle class. <clears throat> And this is actually the coolest thing I think that we've done at TAC because we've, we've broadened it out so much. But there was a researcher that was using TAC systems to understand, there's, there's, so there's always been a theory that every uh, notable lit piece of literature can find its root back to a Shakespearean play or, a, uh, or somebody who's been influenced by Shakespeare. So they actually used, uh, and this is a computer science problem because it's a big giant graph theory problem, uh, to see, hey, who knew what, who knew whom, how is all the artists and how were all the playwrights related in Renaissance England? And so then they researched it, they studied it out, and they basically built this giant mapping algorithm 
that showed you how all of the uh, playwrights and all of the great literary figures were actually all connected and through this big giant graph. And so then what we did was we used this as a cool uh, educational, uh, this computing technique, this model that was generated, we use this as an educational tool as well. So one thing we do at TAC is we run all these uh, STEM camps for high school kids for K through 12. And we do these little quick exercises. Sometimes these camps last an entire week. Sometimes these camps just last one day. So we built these exercises on understanding this model. All right, so basically all these playwrights, all these literary figures were all uh, connected, you know, through, through uh, almost like these six, six degrees of connections, right? So we decided, what, who else is connected? And so we, uh, just to make the students understand better, we did the exact same algorithm and we applied it to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we showed them how all of the Marvel characters are related. And the same graph was applied and we saw like at the very center you had the core Avengers, right? You had uh, Iron Man, uh, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, and Black Widow, kind of all in the middle. And then you had the secondary characters that were jumped out from them. So you had Spider-Man in one place, you know, you had uh, 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 Agent Coulson in another place, and then you bumped out a little bit more, and you saw, oh, you know what? Here's She-Hulk, and here's uh, uh, here's oh shoot, I'm wrong. I'm missing a lot of these now. You know, you had uh, the the Spider Gwen, the Gwen uh, Spider character as well from the Spider Verse, and they all jumped out in this big, really cool uh, graph theory problem. And so then the students, we go, gave them the exact same. So what we were doing is we're using Wikipedia to go through and strip out links. So when, it, when one article linked to another article, we pulled that in. And the more links a article had, the closer it was to the center of our graph. And so then we let students do the same thing. And then we found out something really interesting, which is basically about the Wikipedia world in particular. So when we, uh, one of the examples we gave them, so one of the students did a history of hip hop. And so I'm not very much into hip hop, but in the middle you saw, you know, all these hip hop artists like Kanye West and whatnot, where everything was built on. But then on the edge, you had these guys who, in my mind, are the ones that actually started hip hop. Would be like, you know, art, like the Beastie Boys, for example. But they were all the edge, not really in the center. And same thing when another student in the class did theirs on, you know, basketball, which is the you know, popular sport back in the U.S. So we did, they did theirs on basketball. And they realized in, in the middle were the people like the LeBron James, and then towards the outskirts you had the Michael Jordans. And so then we realized what was going on was we had to sit back and think, all right, why is this data set telling us this story? Why isn't it telling us the story that should be, and it should be Michael Jordan in the middle and LeBron James in the outskirts? I'm originally from Illinois, so I'm a huge uh, Michael Jordan fan. And then we realized the age of the people that keep Wikipedia up and the generation that keeps Wikipedia up. I don't go to Wikipedia and edit articles, I just go to Wikipedia and you know, do some cool experiments on it. But the students in the classroom were the ones that usually do the Wikipedia articles. So they're the ones that actually keep the data updated. And so the data has an automatic bias built into it. But this was a really, really cool project. Um, and then, of course, this project, which is done by Weijia, and I'll introduce Weijia here in a bit. Weijia is our manager of our big data and our statistical uh, research group at TAC. But one thing we have at, in Austin that I've noticed over the last couple days, you also have here in Costa Rica, is traffic is ridiculous. Um, it takes, 
it, like in, in Austin, it takes two hours to go 10 kilometers, which is ridiculous. So one thing that they've done is uh, they've gotten access to a bunch of traffic data and traffic cams, and then they've added machine learning to those uh, traffic cams to identify what is a what is traffic, you know, what's a car, uh, how many cars do you see, what is a pedestrian, uh, what is a uh, what is a basically what what's in your way, what's what is impeding traffic, you know, what's a hazard, what's not a hazard, what is traffic, what's not a traffic, pedestrian, bicycles, buses, and then after you have this data set built, now you can do some uh, what if scenarios. Well, what if this road were one way? Or what if this road were bicycle traffic only? Or this road was uh, bus traffic only? Can we end up getting better traffic going through Austin or better traffic going through Costa Rica, which would be great, or San Jose? So, um, and I'd like to introduce something too as well. And you guys are actually the second group to see this since supercomputing. So we're now entering kind of what we call kind of a new era of computing. We, through these examples I've shown you, it's supercomputing has grown. It's not just the big sciences anymore. It is also art. It is also social changes. And it is also, you know, life changing and science changing. New experiments are being done that couldn't be done before. So we have this new machine that's coming up in April. And this is where I'm saying you guys are only the second people to see this set of slides. Because uh, the last people we saw them was at Supercomputing Conference itself. Uh, what we're calling, and this is Dan Stanzione's quote from, he's our executive director uh, at TAC. He said, this is computing for the endless frontier. So the endless frontier is our, is taken from a, a novel, I can't remember which author it was, I think it was Isaac Asimov, that said the endless frontier is science, is the discoveries that science is going to make, and it's the importance that science is going to play in our day-to-day -day lives. So this is where our new machine, Frontera, has been has been come out from. Uh, we understand, so through a, uh, a small error in uh, translation, we wanted to call our machine Frontier. Uh, but unfortunately, Frontier was taken by another, uh, another center that did not want to change their name. So we translated Frontier to Spanish, and it came back Frontera. Unfortunately, when you translate Frontera back to English, it's borders. And so really should be called Sans Frontera, but oh well, Frontera it is. The idea being it's the endless frontier. So a little bit of time lapse on what Frontera is and actually where TAC came from. So TAC first came up back in like uh, 2003. Uh, so we've been around for a, a little bit of a while now. Uh, 2007 was when we first made our first machine called Ranger and Ranger deployed at number four on the top 500 list the top 500 supercomputers. And that's really what put us on the map. In fact, like I said, parts of Ranger are still alive today in South Africa, uh, in, in, in Tanzania, their data center has one, and actually in some uh, universities around Texas as well. Um, and then you know, we kind of grew, we grew with, we grew to the Exceed network. Uh, in 2012, we brought up Stampede. Um, Stampede replaced Ranger. Uh, and then we brought in the first, the world's first data-intensive supercomputer with Wrangler that I talked about. Uh, we started the Chameleon Cloud. And then 2015, we started to become more of a service provider, not just a uh, hardware, hardware provider. So DesignSafe came up, and I'm on the DesignSafe project. DesignSafe is a, uh, 
It's a cloud-based infrastructure that is uh, pointed at the natural hazards community. So we're looking at uh, a hurricane, tsunami, earthquakes, and then we're also looking at uh, uh, what we call storm surge and wind as well. So we're taking all of these uh, sciences, domain sciences, and we're putting them under the same umbrella. So one thing we noticed when we first started that is a lot of the people in the domain science and natural hazard science, they have the same kind of math. They, do, they solve the same kind of problems. They'll build the same structure. So they'll build, civil engineer will build a structure, and they'll take that structure and put it on a shape table and shake it and see how it does under an earthquake. And then somebody else will take, will design their own model and put that in a big wind tunnel and see how the wind affects it. So the basic idea was, well, if you're building a model for an earthquake, let's just take that exact same model and put that in the wind tunnel as well. So now let's run the same simulations that you would on that model and same simulations you would on this model here uh, for earthquake and for wind, and let's combine the data together and see what the, how that model is affected you know, throughout the space. So that's what DesignSafe's about. Uh, then 2016, Stampede 2 got built, which essentially replaced Stampede 1. And now our new system, is, uh, which is coming up in April of uh, next year, 2019, is Frontera. And so Frontera is really kind of cool because it's, uh, we've gotten funding for it for five years, so we're going to be able to operate and maintain it for five years. And there's also a potential for a phase two. So that's actually kind of cool. Is, uh, how many of you guys have read uh, the book called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? All right. If you haven't read it, it's a fantastic book. It's a very good, uh, it's a kind of allegorical, kind of a humor on what today's society, today's society is about, but it was written like back in the 70s or something. Anyways, one big thing about that was they built a big giant supercomputer to answer the question to life, the universe, and everything. All right? uh, and after a couple million years, the computer finally comes up with an answer, but the answer didn't make any sense. And so he goes, well, uh, obviously, I'm not going to be able to know that you're, I'm just like, I can tell you what the answer is, but I think the big problem is you don't know what the question is. So then the computer, they said, well, tell us what the question is. And the computer goes, you know, I can't do that, but I'll help you design the computer that can. So, so this computer, Deep Thought, was actually involved in building the next computer that is going to understand more science. Frontera is the same way. Part of Frontera's job is going to be to build Frontera 2, to understand what kind of uh, specifications Frontera 2 has to have. And they're going to be pretty big, because right now Frontera 1, the new Frontera, is going to be about 35 to 40 petaflops. So 40 point operations per second, with a, that's how many, and then a bunch of zeros after is how big a petaflop is. The, um, we're going to basically, be, it's going to be a big system. It's going to under, we have a interconnect of basically connecting everything together. We're looking at right now, our network speed is 100 gigabits per second. Uh, Frontera is going to have a topology that's going to be 200 gigabits per second. It's going to have 50 petabytes of disk storage built into the system itself. And three petabytes of that's going to be flash storage. So it's going to be that instant data that we'll be able to have. And uh, very similar to Wrangler, this is going to have 1.5 terabytes per second with a peak. Uh, that's going to be the peak I.O. rate. So essentially, you'd be able to take one and a half Blu-rays and copy it through. Uh, we'll also have a single precision compute subsystem. So there'll be a GPU component as well, not just the CPU components. And it's going to have um, 
we are going to build in these API units to be able to help you move your data across. So your data is very, very important. And I think with Frontier, we realized that you may not want to just keep your system, your data on tax resources. We'd actually love it if you kept your system, your data on tax resources, but you may want to move it around. So we're actually going to build API units to help you move your data to wherever it is your data is going to reside at. And what's interesting about, so Frontera um, is, this is actually the second time this slide has been shown without it being redacted. But this is what Frontera is going to look like. We have our uh, login nodes. So every, every HPC system is kind of designed the same way. You have login nodes that allow users to come in, that allows users to write their programs and whatnot. And then you have compute nodes. Uh, compute nodes are actually where you execute your code. So thousands of users use the login nodes, but when you request a compute node, that node belongs to you and nobody else. So that's where that compute node comes into play at. So we'll have about 8,000 compute nodes and um, you know, a few hundred login nodes. And then we'll have this access layer in the front that's going to be allowing users in, either through the login nodes or through what we're calling the data movers, or through our gateways and APIs like, uh, like what DesignSafe's about these uh, cloud infrastructure gateways. And then the subsystem itself is gonna be cool. So it's gonna be about 38 petaflops is what we're estimating. And it's gonna have over 8,000 of the newest Intel processors, which are called the Cascade Lake. So Sky Lakes are the ones that are out right now. Cascade Lake is coming soon, so that's what it's gonna have in there is Cascade Lakes. Uh, then it's also going to have a, a GPU system, and the GPU is going to be very similar to what we have right now. It's going to be this oil submerged system. So the GPUs, we can put a lot more of them in, no, in per node, and then crank up the uh, uh, crank up the speed on, and so crank up the heat. Uh, then we'll have a scratch file system that's going to be fast acting, so that's where you can write data to and read data from at a very uh, at a high speed, uh, about one and a half terabytes per second. And then we'll have a standard file system as well, which is going to tie everything together. And then we're going to go through these router nodes. And then the router nodes is where I was saying it's going to connect to all the other cloud systems as well. So Frontera is not going to be a system that is, uh, that is involved in itself. It's going to be connected to all the other systems as well, to all the other cloud systems. So it'll have access to like uh, uh, the Amazon Web Services. They'll have access to the Google Cloud. Uh, and it'll have access to the big giant archive system so your data can move around. <clears throat> and so this is the, the quote for it. This is actually taken from Dan Stan, the own slide, saying essentially nothing tends so much to the advancement of knowledge as the application of a new instrument. So what we're really wanting there is supercomputers, if, if we understand, is going to play a bigger role in society. Scientists, uh, Everything from scientists to historians to artists are going to be using our systems. And so we are creating a tool for that system. Just like a scientist, like a, a, a astronomer uses a telescope, this is going to be a science-wide, art-wide system for people to use. All right, so getting started at TAC. So uh, there's a lot of people, so TAC is, a, TAC is a national resource, and we have a lot of international uh, users as well. So we do a lot of stuff at TAC. Um, and this is where that the vision came into play at. That was at the beginning of the slide that I said was out of range. So what I am in charge of is tax training vision. It's like, what do I see TAC? How do I see TAC interacting and outreaching 
to educational educational centers to be able to get their users to use our systems in an optimized way. So one thing we do is we have a bunch of academic courses uh, that we teach through the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I teach a I, I've taught every single one of these courses I've taught. Uh, I teach most some of these courses like two or three of them per semester uh, with co-instructors. Uh, we teach through three, two departments at UT. We teach through the computational engineering department and statistics and data science department, and we teach. Introduction to Scientific Programming, uh, Science and Technical Computing, uh, Software Engineering and Design, and this parallel program for scientists and engineers. So when TAC first came up, well, I would say maybe about uh, you know 17 years ago or so, about three years after that, we decided, you know what, we're going to start teaching academic courses. We were seeing that a lot of researchers were coming and using our systems, but they didn't understand the concepts of parallel programming. How do you write code to be able to run on multiple nodes at the same time? How do you write, how do you write code to run in parallel? So the first course we offered was parallel programming for scientists and engineers. So we taught people how to use MPI, and we taught people how to use OpenMP, and how to use hybrid coding. So I can take advantage of you know, an 8,000 node machine, take advantage of that, and understand how can my code be optimized for it. And then uh, that gave birth. We realized, you know what, a lot of uh, scientists were reinventing the wheel. So there's a lot of libraries out there. There's a lot of techniques to optimize code, a lot of techniques to understand system architecture. So we built this other class, Scientific and Technical Computing. So what that class was done, it was it taught students how to, under, how to build algorithms, uh, how to optimize code, how, what, how to do how compilers, profilers, and debuggers work. Uh, what all the scientific libraries are, a majority of them, which ones you're going to be using a lot, and how those all talk together in a nice little environment. And then we realized, you know what, uh, a lot of our users have never coded before in their life. They've never touched a command line, they've never written a single line of code, and now they're getting master's degrees and PhDs in some sort of computer-related science. So we, entered, we started this Introduction to Scientific Programming class, uh, which Went started from uh, command line all the way to writing. Actually, this is going to be a project you guys are going to work on to writing as a, a scientific model of some sort. Uh, the last project we did in my graduate level course was a disease propagation model. So tomorrow we're going to try and see if we can do that model in Python. Uh, and then, as of late, and this was just this semester was the first time we taught this class. This class called Software Engineering and Design. So the standing joke in, at UT Austin is that in the computer science department, you can go through an entire four years of computer science and never really have to touch a computer. Uh, so the problem with that is, is everything has so, become so theoretical that you don't really get your hands dirty. So we started the software engineering design class, uh, which is a, a practical hands-on software engineering course to get students' hands dirty on building a software stack, a software system that solves a big problem. Uh, so we teach everything from understanding how APIs work to understanding how to do unit testing, uh, to do some project management skills, uh, to pull in how to pull in VMs and containers, and to build a replicable data environment. So one of the biggest issues we have right now is data reproducibility, right? So I can write a 5,000 line program that solves, actually I do a lot of cancer research, that solves uh, cancer, or understands cancer. And if I take that data, or take my code, and I publish it, and somebody else takes my code and runs it on their machine, 
and they get different results because they're running on a different machine, they're running on a different compiler, they have different versions of libraries. Uh, any number of items can change your program from running one way versus another way. Then they're just gonna come back and say, you know what, Charlie, you don't know what you're talking about. I ran your code and I got totally different results. So this is where virtualization and uh, containerization came from. It's, can we now build a software system that is replicable? Can I take this system that I wrote my program in and I know my program runs in and I can just archive that and then somebody else can go to that archive, download the entire software stack and then run their system. So that's what we're teaching in our software engineering design classes, building those kind of replicable environments. And then we also do a bunch of one-day classes, and these are actually free to anybody. Um, these are open to you guys if you ever want to use them. You just go to TAC's website and uh, get a current schedule. But we teach these one-day, these three-hour, six-hour classes. Uh, they're also webcast on a variety of different topics. Everything from uh, theoretical to high-concept stuff like parallel programming, machine learning, or data analytics, or to scientific visualization to actual technologies like C++ or Fortran or Python or learning how to use R or Hadoop. Uh, one class we just taught is a C++ for C programmers. Uh, that one was because one of the instructors at TAC hates pointers and he, he's one of the HPC consultants. He's a really great guy and I co-teach with him all the time, but he absolutely hates pointers. He wants everybody to use objects. And so I'll say, you know what we really need is we need a class to teach C programmers how to use objects. And so then he put this class together uh, because he hates pointers. And then anyways, we do a lot of these webinars. Uh, there's a, a site called learn.tac at utexas.edu. Um, if you go there, usually our short courses are all posted. And I think we're working on uh, this next semester schedule right now. And then we do these this summer institute series. And this is kind of a big deal as well. And these are a bunch of courses that we, that, these are one-week institutes at TAC, where essentially you come and you immerse yourself with us, and we'll go through different technologies or different techniques, different subject matters. Um, I want to make sure I'm running good with time. Um, different subject matters on uh, on a variety of topics. Some of them are general, like the first one is advanced computing basics. That is essentially understanding all the introduction stuff, like introduction to Python, uh, introduction to Fortran, introduction to C++. Uh, we talk a little bit about um, what how a a, a supercomputer cluster is designed and built out. It's kind of like the foundations. And then we do advanced computing, which is basically a broad stroke of all the advanced computing topics that we have at TAC. Everything from machine learning uh, and data analysis to scientific visualization uh, to virtualization, containerization, we teach uh, in the advanced computing one. And then we start going into a deeper dive with applied parallel programming. So we've noticed that a lot of scientists understand the concepts of parallel programming. They understand how to use MPI and OpenMP and hybrid coding. What they don't understand is how do you take that and then apply it to their own programs. Uh, so that's what we do with applied parallel programming. Uh, we did this machine learning and deep learning course which was ran by Amwesia, uh, which was probably the most popular class that we ever had over at TAC. Uh, we do SciViz, uh, computational science on the cloud, and the new one that we're introducing is the scientific workflows and data reproducibility, all about building these containers and building reproducible data and building scientific workflows. And then designing and administering large-scale systems. So when you build these big, giant clusters, it takes a lot of effort to keep these clusters up and running. So uh, what we give you guys is a, is a raw rack 
that the students or the uh, registrants essentially have to configure, build a software stack on, and then manage. And then usually something will go wrong in the process. Uh, most of the time, it's not something artificially induced. It's not something we put in there to make sure it breaks to, as a teaching lesson. It actually just breaks because it's just part of the game. So that's actually a really, really popular course. And then the last one is HPC Leadership. And this is the first time that I actually ever sat in that, that, uh, uh, that institute. But it's really cool because the idea is we can build these giant clusters. You know? So we have this 8,000 node machine coming soon uh, with Frontera. But how do we rank if it was a successful launch or not? What attributes do you look at? OK, so we have 10,000 users. Is that a lot? Is that not enough? Is that too, is that too little? Is that too many? How do, we, how do we rank that? What risks are involved when you build a machine? So we put Frontera together, and we won a $60 million grant for Frontera. And we also won the phase two of Frontera, which is going to be 100 times faster than Frontera 1 is going to be Frontera 2. What are the risks involved in building that? And how do you analyze what the risks are? And what, uh, and what avenues do you research to, to be able to build these systems? So that's what the HPC leadership is. And then we also do what we call the star partners. I'm not sure if I'm, how many of you are uh, affiliated with a corporation of some sort, but we have a star partnership program at TAC, which is essentially these corporate partners that um, it's usually some sort of trade-off. Either they give us money and we give them compute time, or they give us uh, data sets. Like I said, the most expensive, the most valuable thing we have is data. So if they give us data sets to be publicly available, then we give them compute time on our system as well. Um, and so essentially what they're designed to do is building uh, you know, next generation data centers or understanding different uh, network topologies or uh, understanding remote viz, and so they'll sit down and we'll put courses together for them to understand this stuff, and they'll use our systems. Uh, our biggest, uh, our, of course, we're from Texas, so our biggest star partners are the oil companies. And yeah, some of it is trying to figure out how to better uh, mine oil, right, or drill for oil. But they also, the oil companies, they're, they're pretty intelligent. They understand that their resource that they're selling is uh, not an infinite resource. It is limited and one day it's going to be gone. So they use our systems a lot for understanding uh, renewable resources and next generation energy sources. And so uh, what you usually do, like I said, is open negotiations, but majority of the time we do some sort of um, access to our computing resources and some sort of trade, user monetary, or they give us access to one thing and we give them access to another, trading technologies or whatnot. And we do different uh, we do different consulting roles for them. We'll help them write software. Uh, we'll put together hackathons for them. We'll give them um, techniques on optimizing their code and building better high-performance machines for their own systems or whatnot. And this is just a list of some of the uh, companies that are on our Star Partner our Partnership Program. Like I said, the big oil companies are there. Uh, one of the cooler companies is this company called Firefly Space Systems. So what Firefly does is they launch all these little micro-satellites and they launch it on these green engines, so their engines are actually highly optimized and not burn as much fuel. Uh, and they're located in Texas. They actually were in California, but then they moved to Texas to be closer to us to be able to use our systems. All right, um, and we're not going to go through this because I've created, I've created uh, accounts for you guys already to use, 
But we go through, our, we have a user portal system. The user portal is what manages everybody's projects and it manages everybody's accounts and allows you to see how many hours you have available to use on our systems. But essentially what it is, is everything is built on projects and allocations. So if there's a project you want to work on, uh, you go to TAC and you submit what the project is and you submit who's going to be working on it for you, how many of hours of compute time and how much data your project requires. And so then we go to the allocation uh, and then we got like a little board at TAC that kind of sits through and reads through everybody and gives you uh, gives you suggestions on how to reword your allocations or technologies that you may want to look at, or, uh, and then we give you, we open up tax resources for you to use. Uh, so you can go there and you manage your, you know, do your manages, you, you need your abstract or justification, an idea of what machine is going to be best suited for your needs, essentially what kind of science you're going to be doing in our system. Uh, then you run through there and you put, like I said, this is normally hands-on, but I've created accounts for you guys already. Uh, so how many allocations you require, how many users you require, uh, and then where the funding resource is coming from, normally by some sort of grant. And then we have like a, a renewal period. So if there's a system or if there's a system you want to use, you can come through TAC and use our, our resources, all right? Uh, because you guys are international, it is best to be able to set up a correspondence with a U.S. scientist that's working on something similar. And then through that correspondence, you'll be able to use access tax systems. Okay, um, so are there any questions or comments about our systems in general? Or if there's any uh, technology that you'd like me to talk about a little bit more in some more detail? Yes, please. Yes, they are. Uh, like I said, the best way to do it is to get to affiliate yourself with one of the schools at UT at, in the U.S. and then it, it works well. You can also uh, contact TAC directly, and then we can go that route as well because we do have a lot of international uh, universities and research research organizations that use our systems. But yeah, um, you can email me or email Wager or go to our uh, our TAC website and all the contact information there as well. There are any other questions? Yes. So maybe not too related, but maybe I am interested in your opinion. I've heard that uh, quantum computing might change the complete paradigm of what we do of all machines. So maybe you can refer to that comparison to this event. Yeah, so remember, um, computing has been around a long time. So one of the programming languages I teach is Fortran. Fortran has been around a very long time, and it's not going anywhere. In fact, we just made the example, and so I teach the introduction to scientific programming class, and we start with C++ and we go into Fortran, and we made uh, the comment in that class that Fortran is good, a lot of the students in there, so it's a lot of, some, most of these students that I have in this class are undergraduates. And so I was making the comment that most of your grandparents started using Fortran back in the 50s, right? Quantum computing, the question was, how is quantum computing going to change the HPC paradigm? Quantum computing is going to take us back to the 50s. If there's everything that we know about supercomputing right now, how the architecture is developed, the programming languages we use to interface with the, with the code, even, even how we actually code uh, using a keyboard, or do we now have to put on suits and go into a zero you know, a, a zero degree area to be able to hardwire our code together, where is that going to take us? And you think about back in the 40s and back in the 
30s and 40s when computing was just that. It was actually hard wires connecting different transistors together. All right, I mean, so you had these big, big giant vacuum tubes that were sitting inside your machine, and depending on how you connected these tubes together, you'd have a different output. That's exactly where the first programming bug came from, right? The first programming bug wasn't a mistake in your code. It was because moths would fly into the big giant supercomputers, or the big giant computers at that point, and build nests next to the vacuum tubes because they liked the glowing colors. So that's where it came from. And that is where we're going to have to go back to to understand how do we use quantum computing. So quantum computing is going to be big. In fact, we have like three or four people at TAC that that is what they research on. Um, her name is Antia. You can find her on our website, and she'd be happy to answer your any questions. But that's where, where it's going to go back to. We have to relearn everything from ground zero to be able to apply quantum computing to the problems that we're applying HPC computing to now. And it's going to it's going to go back to how do we interface with the machine? Uh, how does the programming language going to look? How is it going to interact? How are qubits going to be organized in such a fashion that I can manipulate them through code? You know, that's where it's going. That's where the first steps are going to be done from. I mean, they've developed quantum. I think uh, was it, I think Intel showed that off at their booth at S at supercomputing. IBM. Oh, it's IBM. Thank you. Yeah, IBM was showing off their quantum, their quantum chip at, uh, at SC and the layers of, of cooling tubes that essentially had to sit inside to be able to actually run at the optimal temperature. Because, in, so uh, D-Wave, their first chip that they, they created was essentially, they were monitoring how, uh, it was a weave of different layers of wire, right? and the wire was sitting at uh, near zero degrees. And the idea was when you're putting a current through there to calculate something, you're looking at the vibrations the wires were creating, and those vibrations is what you're analyzing to be able to do your program. You're analyzing those vibrations at a quantum level. You know, At a molecular level, you're analyzing those vibrations. So if something was off as far as temperature goes or environment goes, then now you're creating an artificial influx in those vibrations that you're monitoring. So, and then of course now there's another, how do you monitor the output? What does the output mean? And so there are so many variables that we're gonna be looking at uh, that it is not, right now it is still sitting at the Isaac Asimov, for me, it's sitting at the Isaac Asimov level of understanding what computing is. It's, you let the dreamers understand what that means, and the futurists understand how to use that technology, and then the people like us will be able to build the technology to be able to use in those in that fashion. I mean, that's where computing came from. You have those sci-fi uh, those sci-fi authors back in the 20s, you know, H.G. Wells, Isaac Asimov, uh, uh, those guys writing what the computing world's going to look like, and then it became our job, you know, 100 years later, to be able to make their their vision come true. That's where we're at right now. We're looking at reading the current, you know, books, look at books that were written in the 80s. That is what we're having to get to in the next 100 years. And quantum computing is going to play into that role. How do you make a, an immersive environment such that you have real-time, uh, you have real-time zero lag uh, interaction in a virtual world, and the only way to do that is through quantum computing. All right, that's a cool question. I'm 
futurist both talk sometimes. That's always interesting to me. Uh, any other questions, or comments, or any other information you'd like to know about TAC? So very good. All right. So it looks like we're doing pretty good on time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. So right now we we can take the break, thirty minutes, and be here at ten thirty. So. Vamos a tomar el receso, ya podemos ir de 10 a 10 y media, están en el mismo lugar.